0: My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast? The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? My fellow survivors, if you can hear the sound of my voice, that means that you are still alive and it is my continued mission to keep it that way. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? I'm your host, Kate Courtley, and today we have a retired four-star general who entered the United States Air Force in 1974 and graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1979 with a bachelor of science degree in aviation science. Now, he served on active duty in the United States Air Force for over 40 years. During his military career, that included six overseas assignments. He was a command pilot with more than 5,000 flying hours, including more than 470 combat hours. He primarily flew the F-16 in addition to the T-38 and the T-37. He served as commander of the Air Force Global Strike Command. He also concurrently as the commander of Air Force Strategic Command and U.S. Strategic Command responsible for the nation's three ballistic missile wings. What does that mean, folks? This gentleman was responsible for approximately one-third of the nation's nuclear deterrent. A little bit of responsibility there. He is the recipient of the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal. He is currently the chief executive officer of the Gary Sinise Foundation. Folks, let me introduce and please welcome General Robin Brand. General, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. It's an honor.
1: Thanks, Cade.
0: Please tell me I got most of that intro right.
1: Yeah, you did great. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Sir, uh, I understand you're sort of a neighbor of mine.
1: You're in Eagle, Colorado right now? I am. I love it. Yeah. We're here after I retired. My wife and I she was born and raised in Colorado Springs, and I took her around the world for forty years. And we heard <laughs> was calling us back. So,
0: <laughs> so it's so, so you're pay, you're paying it back now, sir, right? That's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: Eagle, uh, Eagle's an amazing town, and it's close to so many awesome ski resorts. But it also is kind of known for having one of the most dangerous airports in the United States.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting approach, that's for sure. <laughs> but we're glad it's here. It, before COVID hit, it allowed me to make commuting a lot easier because I could just go right to the airport versus having to drive two and a half hours down to Denver. So Absolutely. I'm grateful for the airport.
0: So, General, what was it? Was there a turning point or something that happened that said, when you were younger, I want to be in aviation? Was it an air show? Was there a family member that flew? What yeah. was the motivation for aviation?
1: Uh, that's a great question. So before we were on the air, I was telling you about my dad. My father was a, a fighter pilot and served in the Army Air Corps and the Air Force for over 30 years. And so I'm sure subliminally there was some messaging there, but I played sports in high school and, you know, I was a, a fair to partly cloudy, you know, mediocre athlete, but the academy, my f- father's last duty assignment was Colorado Springs. And that was the years I was in high school. And I played ball and the academy showed some interest in me coming up there. So that kind of tipped the scales a little bit. And in the 70s, when I went to the academy, the expectation was if you were physically qualified, when you graduated, the expectation is you go to pilot training. And So, you know, that's basically what happened. And it wasn't really until I got to pilot training that I fell in love with, you know, aviation. So, and then it just became this you know, forty year love affair. So but I'm sure it was a combination of my father, then the obviously being at the academy and then having the opportunity to do it. It just kinda resonated and like I said, kinda stole my heart.
0: So did you ever consider maybe naval aviation and landing on aircraft carriers, or were you like, I will <laughs> never get invited to Thanksgiving again? Well, I'll <laughs> tell you this, Kate,
1: I, I have tremendous admiration for Navy aviators. It's amazing what they do and you know I know taking off and landing at at night on a on a carrier has to be um, part terror, part exhilaration i I can't even imagine it in forty years. I spent a lot of time with naval aviators, you know, obviously served together. We're in the same places doing the same missions. they just how they start and how they end is a little different than than how we do it so
0: <laughs> Sir, do you recall your first combat operation and what that feeling was like like? All right, this, all the training, all the work, and now I'm doing it for real the first time. What was that like, sir?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, none of us, I, I don't think, you know, I came into the Air Force as a kind of a Cold War guy, you know, with the arch enemy was the USSR. And that's what we trained for and prepared for for so many years. And then Desert Storm really changed the dynamics, certainly for the ops tempo for the United States Air Force. and from 1991 through today, you know, we've been heavily engaged in in daily combat operations. And I guess it's kind of like playing on a football team. You practice, 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 and then, you know, the real show. And it was an onus, burden, and responsibility. My combat experience was really supporting the ground war. What was the guys like you that were running around uh, doing our, our really nation's really dirty, dirty business. And when called on, the enormous pressure you feel not to fail those guys down there you know honestly and it's not always delivering ordnance it's you know it's just providing them you know overwatch it's providing them any kind of of recce you can it's like being just over the top of them and then when they need iron delivered you want to get it right and it's certainly a lot of the combat i did was a lot of hours of boredom and a circle interrupted by moments of stark panic and you really got to get this right. And and when you finish, you kind of walked away, go, boy, glad I did that. So
0: Well, general, I can tell you as one of those guys on the ground, when things got really nasty and on the verge of out of control, there was no better feeling than being able to get on the radio and talk to somebody who was airborne yeah. and know, I mean, we called you guys angels in the sky because in many, many cases was the tipping point between – Absolute devastation and mission
1: success. So, sir, thank Absolutely. you, thank you for that. I know it's an honor. Thank you.
0: Surface to air, air to air. Any, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe describe that feeling of realizing, okay, I'm out here, I'm doing my job. Oh, and P.S., there are folks out here that are trying to kill me. It's kind of a crazy realization, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. But you know, you train. It's like you know, your training kicks in. And the one thing the United States military is Why I believe we are the greatest military in the world, certainly tactically, I don't think anyone can argue with that, is no one trains harder than we do. We prepare, we train, we debrief, we analyze what we did right, what we did wrong. And then when we're called on, your training kicks in. And it's just that simple. I was not ever asked to do something in combat that I hadn't trained for, in some way, shape, or form. And I think that speaks to every facet of our military. I think we can say that I know about special operators, we can say the same about our conventional forces, but I certainly can say that about our aviators. And I think that's why when we go there, I'm not saying we have always had that luxury, but certainly the military that I served in, we trained hard and we were prepared. So I can tell you some of the training missions that i did you know throughout my career they were some tough ones you know and they're not without risk you know we we lose people
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) training it's the price of business
0: yes it is well they say uh, train like you fight and if you're doing that yeah there is an inherent risk and speaking of inherent risk can you describe maybe any aircraft emergencies you've ever had to deal with oh, geez. have you ever yeah, you're like, you like know, where do i start and have you yeah, ever come no. close to saying or have you i, I can't well, fix I'm this lucky, i got
1: i'm really a lucky guy you know i spent most of my career and i flew throughout my career i was very 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 fortunate at least you know selfishly to say that that i was still flying as a four-star general and most of that was single seat single engine and the good news is that my landings matched my takeoffs
0: oh, so you always brought it home which
1: is so i was able to you know a lot of my cohorts and brothers and sisters you know who flew have had the distinct honor of having to ride down on the riser with the parachute over to the top of them but yeah you know of course uh, there were some scary moments whether i didn't know if the engine was going to work all the way back some braking system malfunctions that you learn about just close calls from, you said, the air-to-air training, you know, some close near-mid airs. So that's just the nature of the business. But again, what gets us through is we train really, really hard. And you don't just go in there without knowing your systems and without being prepared to handle Throughout your career, you're always having to do emergency procedures and simulators. And again, you probably overtrain. Again, I never had an emergency that I had not trained or practiced somewhere before it actually happened. So that speaks to, I think, we put our money where our mouth is, you know.
0: Well, so you talked about training, and I'm really good friends with Scott O'Grady. And I'm sure you're familiar okay. with Scott. And, sure. you yeah. know, he was, he was basically trying to, he was keeping uh, a fly-free zone over Bosnia. He got hit with surface air missile. His F-16s sure and a half, he had to punch out. And that was just the beginning because he was on the run for six days with. Uh, yeah, he evaded. Yeah, he had a I've l-
1: never served with Scott. I've read his book. I, I obviously know his story. I've uh, served with a lot of people who served with him. I know a lot of people that were in that unit when his incident happened. And So it's a compelling story. Holy cow.
0: Well, he's a great guy, sir. I told him I was going to get the opportunity to speak with you today. He wanted me to say hello to you. And he said the same thing you did just a few minutes ago about the training. He said, yeah, once I hit the ground, all that training kicked in. And, you know, he attended SEER school survive, right. evade, resist, escape. Yeah. And he said it was invaluable when he got on the ground and was running for six days. And so yeah. did you go through a SEER school or a form of, a, you know, the POW type of school?
1: Yeah, Kate, absolutely. So again, I'm aging myself. So back when I was at the Air Force Academy, we had our, SEERI, it was called, was a three-week program that we did at the Academy. And you did it between your freshman and sophomore year. And it was a combination of cadets who taught it, survival instructors, the Air Force Survival Schools in Fairchild Mm -hmm. in Spokane, Washington. And uh, you do the whole gamut. You do the resistance training where you actually spent time in a simulated POW camp. You did the, uh, where you're out there and you're evading for three or four days and there are aggressors on the ground. Really a a good program. And and here's the compelling part about this. I did this in the summer of 1976. Remember we withdrew our forces from Vietnam in 1973 and we brought about 500 plus POWs home. So there was a lot of corporate knowledge of how to incorporate all the things that these guys went through were incorporated and that training today is still applied. Those lessons are still integrated throughout. A very, very, very intense three weeks of survival and resistance training at the academy. And then throughout your career, you have smatterings of times when you go through. Those who aren't academy graduates go to survival training at Fairchild. Mm -hmm. It's, It's mandatory for any aviator to do that before you show up at an operational unit. You have to get your survival training. And then you periodically do things. If you're gonna be stationed in Alaska, you have Arctic training. If you're gonna be stationed, you know, we all have to periodically do our water survival training in case we were to punch out over the over the water. And so it, again, is not just a one-time thing. And Scott's account of that was compelling, to say the least. And Kudos to those guys at Fairchild who make a living out of keeping us. And every operational unit has survival instructors. Mm-hmm enlisted guys in there. These guys are just really, you know, they know it, man. They know everything. And so it's just a requirement that you go through.
0: Well, General, you talked about using the POWs from Vietnam to really implement and improve that program. I went through in the 90s in addition to losing the 25 pounds in a week, which was a lot of fun, I, uh, <laughs> I actually, they were still implementing and drawing on the experiences of these guys from Vietnam. And I wanted to ask you, anytime somebody talks to me or asks me a question about mental toughness, one of the first examples that I bring up are any of the guys who spent time in the Hanoi Hilton, your right. John McCains and those guys. and I, right. And I'm just, what are your thoughts about what those guys went through and how they stayed together and some of them were yeah, offered I, release and refused unless it was the whole crew. It just, it was
1: incredible. It's one of the most remarkable, collectively, what they went through is one of the most remarkable examples of resiliency that you can imagine, any of us. And we, we use the word heroes in a lot of different connotations, but I got to tell you, one day in Hanoi was one day too many in the Vietnam War, and the fact that hundreds of them spent Upwards to five, six, as many as seven years surviving. I have nothing but admiration, total awe. And it's hard to really describe my feelings towards our, our Vietnam veterans in general. And then particularly those that survived imprisonment in Vietnam and North Vietnam. I've got to know several of them fairly well. I've, I've had experiences with them and you just listen. They're so compelling. They're, they're very humble people, by mm-hmm. the way. They're very wise and they're very resilient. We brought one of them out to the Gary Sinise Foundation just before the holidays and Christmas. His name is Colonel Retired Lee Ellis. Lee's one of my favorite people in the world. He wrote a book called Leading with Honor. It's an amazing book because it's full of, you know, if you like good war stories, every chapter starts off with an experience, there I was type of thing. But what's unique about his book is it doesn't end there. The second half of the Chapter is what do you learn from this? What's the takeaways? What's the lesson of resiliency? Leading with honor is the name of the book, Cade. You should look it up. When I was in the uh, active duty as a commander, I gave it to every one of my subordinate commanders Uh, upon them assuming command. Was called leading with honor, and we brought Lee out to the Gary Sinise Foundation here in December, and uh, just a remarkable guy, remarkable story, and we can learn from them. We can learn from them.
0: Well, that leads me to the next question, sir. When I was getting ready to become a platoon commander, I was a young J.O., and I got my hands on every after-action report I could. I was reading stuff from Vietnam and what they went through, and I learned so much just from what went right, what went wrong, and what went really wrong. And Those lessons learned from history, for me, was enormous for my learning curve as a young platoon commander.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. I have nothing but admiration for our Vietnam veterans. I have three. My father's since passed away, but my father and my two brothers were Marines who all three served in, in Vietnam. It was a tough war. But when you look back through history now, particularly as someone who served post-Vietnam, I was probably a two-star general before I had someone in my chain of command who was not a Vietnam veteran. So growing up, All my flight commanders, my squadron commanders, my group commanders, my wing commanders all had served and flown in Vietnam almost without exception. They made our Air Force the Air Force that went to Desert Storm, that took on Saddam, that took on in Serbia. That was their Air Force that they built. They took their hard earned lessons and applied it. And they also taught us a lot of those Vietnam veterans were the leaders when 9-11 happened and we were brought to our knees and they were the ones across the nation, not just in the military. You said, get up, get up. We learned from them. They've never been given the credit Mm -hmm. that they came home bent, but not broken. And they turned this nation that did some amazing things. We took on the USSR. We took on several brutal dictators and I'm just proud of that generation. I think they're marvelous. And I don't think they've ever gotten the credit they deserve. So I, I'll get emotional. I better stop there. But to the veterans that are listening, we love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome home.
0: Absolutely, sir. There's really no substitute for experience. And those guys coming back still had that fight in them to keep going. And right. uh, it's pretty incredible. Sir, as an officer and a leader, there is... An amazing opportunity to lead incredible folks underneath you take care of them give them what they need support them in any way but then there's also the burden of leadership when you lose one of your people yeah. and we don't have to go down this path very far but uh no, just okay just your experience of maybe that first letter that you had to write and how painful yeah. i'm sure that was
1: well you know i look back and uh, throughout my career you know unfortunately in, in the fighter pilot business it's it's a tough business and through hook or crook, you know, accidents happen and I lost some close friends. And, but the sting of combat is tough, obviously. And when I've deployed to Iraq in late June, early July of 2006 through July of 2007, that was a tough year for us as a military. Any metric you use to measure success or failure we had the wrong metrics, you know, sectarian violence was at its highest in 2006 and seven. The uh, casualty rates, the fatality rates were at its highest of the war. And I know these closely because I had, under the command of the 332nd there at Balad Air Base, we had the largest theater hospital. And our surgeons were doing over 2,000 surgical procedures a month on US coalition civilian and, you know, enemy forces. And it was just a tough, and then, you know, in January of 07, President Bush did the surge of 30 additional troops between January and June, and it got worse before it got better. And so I had an opportunity to experience that firsthand, and we lost plenty of airmen that were assigned to my command because they were out there doing the tough business with the soldier, sailors, airmen, and Marines on the ground. You know, a lot of EOD guys, some of our security forces, some of our special uh, OSI agents, they were assigned to the three thirty second. And so, too many memorial services, too many phone calls. But one time, someone asked me what it was it like commanding a, a wing in combat. We had over eight thousand airmen scattered across forty five locations that were under the wing, and I thought about it, and I didn't really have the right words, and I said, "Well, you know, combat." The highest, the highs, the lowest of
0: lows, but always an honor. Well, sir, at one point in your career, you were responsible for one third of all the United States nuclear assets. And I'm just, I mean, okay, different people have different jobs with different responsibilities. I am having a hard time finding one that has a greater <laughs> amount of responsibility than one third of the U.S. nuclear assets. Was there ever a time maybe alone or something like that. You just change the command and you said to yourself, wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Kate, it's a funny story. Um, And I'm not correcting you. So Air Force Global Strike Command was formerly known as Strategic Air Command. And Strategic Air Command in the Cold War was that all the bombers that had the intercontinental ballistic missiles. And post-Desert Storm in 1991-92, the Air Force went through a reorganization and they they retired the flag from SAC, Strategic Air Command. And they took those assets and they spread them around to different commands. About that time, we got very involved, you know, in in what we were doing over in the Middle East, 9-11 happened. And our focus as a nation became very centric on what was going on, certainly in the war on terror. And we took our eye off the ball on on some of these near-peer competitors, Russia and China and others that had large conventional and, and nuclear forces, and that was a mistake. Okay, and so in 2009, we realized that that we needed probably to consolidate our nuclear arsenal back under a single command, single focus. And so, Strategic Air Command was stood back up and renamed Air Force Global Strike. And it's actually two-thirds of the nuclear enterprise because there are three legs. There's the sea base leg with submarines. Mm-hmm. There's intercontinental base leg with the Air Force, and there's our bomber, our B-52, and our B-2s are nuclear capable. And So the command stood back up. I was not steeped in the nuclear business enterprise. I was, uh, as I said, most of my career in, in fighters. And my job in 2014 was commander of air education training command. Just that's what it is. We do all the basic military training, our tech training, our flying training, our air university, our ROTC, it's all this conglomerate. And I was that commander and the chief of staff of the Air Force gave me a call and he said, hey, when we stood up Air Force Global Strike Command in 2009, we made it a three-star, but I want to upgrade it to a four-star position. And we don't have anyone on the bench right now in the nuclear enterprise that can go make that leap. Tag, you're it. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I left Air, Air Education Training Command thinking that would have been my kind of sunset job. In the summer of 2015, I went to Air Force Global Strike as the first four-star commander of it. And it was amazing. I got to do that for three years, and I you know, had to really learn fast. I didn't know much about the intercontinental ballistic missile business or the bomber business, but it was just amazing. And the airmen that we have in that command are amazing. They serve in some really hard locations. You know, we, we serve 24-7, 365 alert in our missile fields with our intercontinental ballistic missiles. I always said, you keep the enemy sleep with one eye open because of you all. They serve in the barren fields of Minot, North Dakota, mm-hmm. uh, where it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. And mouth from Montana and Great Falls and in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Very rugged duty. Our bombers are deployed around the globe constantly. Our combatant commanders love having them, I and mean, they provide such deterrence as a is an interesting business. Our motto was deter, assure, and if that fails, strike. And deterrence and assurance is a tough business. To deter, you have to be lethal. You have to be capable, and the enemy has to believe that you'll take them out. And to assure, you have to be lethal and you have to be capable, and you're allies and friends got to believe you'll protect them. So it's an onus, huge responsibility to deter bad people who have ill will towards us and to assure those who want to sip of the same things we sip of called freedom.
0: So General, mutually assured destruction is still very relevant in your opinion.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I believe though that we want the enemy to believe don't mess with us. It's a high price to pay, and, but don't calculate our determination to, again, to deter when we need to. Yeah, I'm much more of the philosophy, carry a big stick and make sure people know that you're not afraid to use it if necessary. Only if necessary, but to preserve what we hold near and dear.
0: And just like poker, don't bluff.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no bluffing. There's no bluffing.
0: General, if you had a one-minute conversation with a 2nd Lieutenant Robin Rand, what would that conversation be like?
1: Oh, boy. Thanks, Cade. That's a great question. It really is because 2nd Lieutenant Robin Rand was probably, uh, like a lot of us then, immature, self-absorbed, probably self-centered. The concept of our core values in the Air Force which we didn't have formalized when I came in, by the way, but is integrity, service before self, and excellence in all we do. I'm not sure I had the grip on service before self.
0: Well, sir, I don't know how many 21, 22-year-olds do. Yeah. I was full of piss and vinegar. So I would have loved to grab that guy by the ear and straighten him out.
1: Yeah, I think that's so. That what I would have probably have – and what, what I had the opportunity to do as I aged and matured was to ask people to think about what it does mean. Why do you serve? What are your reasons? And what I realized is that why you come into the military, for lots of reasons, and none are good or bad. There are risk reasons. There are several reasons why people join. But that's not the important question of why you came in. The important question is why do you stay in? And that often changes from why you came in to why you stay in changes. And hopefully along the way, it's because of service before self. It's because you believe in the mission, you wanna take care of the people who are performing the mission, and you wanna help take care of the families who support the people who are doing the mission. And that's what I would try to instill in that second lieutenant You know, rant. Take care of your people, take care of their families, be good. I also tell though the young one, I said, get good at your job, man. Get really good at your job.
0: So, General, I'm looking over your right shoulder and I see what I believe is a P fifty one Mustang. Have you? Yes, you're right. Have you ever gotten the chance to get in one of those? That's what that's what I, I actually that's a I, list
1: for me. It was for me too. Oh. And I did when I had the privilege of being the commander of Twelfth Air Force in Davis Moth in Tucson, Arizona, every year in February all the folks that do air shows, not just the Thunderbirds, but we have demonstration teams, F-15s, F-16s, F-22s, but a lot of the folks that we have P-51s and B-17s and that will show up at these air shows. And every year they had to show up before the show season started and perform before the commander of air combat. And it was hosted at Davis Mothin where I was at. And on that weekend, I got to hop. They carved it out because the P fifty one single seater, but they carved out place in the back and modified that airplane. And I actually got to fly in a P fifty one that was on the wing of an F four and a P fifty one in an A ten. Believe it or not, <laughs> we came did several passes. You know, as we came swooping by and it was just amazing.
0: That's just a buffet of aircraft right there.
1: <laughs> oh, it is. It was it was wild.
0: That's outstanding. Yeah, there aren't a whole lot of those left that are flying, but the aircraft in my humble opinion from that era, those that P 38s were just beautiful aircraft. I mean amazing.
1: Well that airplane's special because it's a model that was given to me when I commanded I mentioned to you the 332nd Air Expeditionary Wing carried the guide on in the colors. From the 332nd Fighter Group in World War II. And the 332nd Fighter Group was the famous Tuskegee Airmen mm-hmm. led by then Colonel Benjamin O. Davis Jr. And it was an all-African American unit that before we had integrated our military. And they upgraded and finished the war flying P-51s, and they were renowned for being bomber escorts. And they had the lowest. Attrition rate of any bomber escort unit in World War II, meaning fewer bombers were lost being escorted by the 332nd than any other unit. Very, very distinguished unit. So you can't see it, but they were called the Red Tails, the 332nd Red Tails, and they painted the tails of their P51s bright red. So
0: it's a beautiful aircraft, General. You ever were there? Any thoughts early in your career about maybe getting into the astronaut program? That was sort of just up and running Mercury and and then Genesis and
1: yeah. follow on with that with Apollo. Was there ever a eh, that might be kind of cool? no, I personally didn't have any. You know, by the time that I would have been able to do that, we were heavy into the space shuttle and mm-hmm. the challenger. I actually served with some people literally who flew F-16s, went the test pilot training and then went on to become astronauts and flew in the, the space shuttle. I've known some people, phenomenal, great admiration for them. It just, it wasn't something, I guess my hands were full just trying to sure. you know, to keep my, my nose above water flying the F-16s.
0: <laughs> well, General, I want to congratulate you on your retirement. And it didn't sound like you spent a whole lot of time on vacation because you are now the CEO of the Gary Sinise Foundation. Can you talk to folks? a little bit more about what the Gary Sinise Foundation does, your role, what the goals are, and everybody involved with it.
1: I would love to. Thank you for the opportunity. So when you serve a while, your mentors and guys that retire ahead of you give you advice. And one piece of advice I get is take some time after you retire. Take some time. Don't do anything. Take six months and just don't do anything. And that rascal Gary Sinise cornered me (laughs) before I retired. And and gave me an offer that was too good to too good to refuse, I guess, as they say. I retired in uh, one September, officially one September 2018. So I'm coming up on two years. Of, and I, I assumed this position of the CEO in October of 2018. So I'd failed miserably. I didn't listen to the advice of my senior mentors. But I've had the privilege and the honor to serve in the Gary Sinise Foundation under the leadership. Of our founder and chairman Gary Sinise, who's a remarkable human being, mm-hmm. no regrets, haven't looked back at all. A lot of times, people ask me, "How did you know Gary?" I was a commander of a base in South Korea called Kunsan Air Base, and in 2004, think of where we were. Gary, this was post 9/11, really wanted to get involved, and he is a musician, one of the many things he is, and he actually. Kind of had a band that he had put together, and he contacted the USO and kept pestering and say, "Hey, volunteering our band service, you know, we'll go anywhere, we'll play for the for the troops, you know, we're not bad." And in 2004, the USO authorized him to take the Gary Sinise and Lieutenant Dan band on their first overseas tour, Mm -hmm. and they went to the Pacific. And one of the places they went to was the Republic of Korea, and one of their stops was Kunsan Air Base. Now he had a very Captive audience when they perform there because we were all there on one-year assignments without our families. So everyone's there on an unaccompanied tour, and they show up in the middle of the week and on a week night they play for us, and and it was a wonderful concert and put a lot of pep in our step. And the next morning I woke up and there's an email from Gary Sinise, and I knew him, you know, like many did, as Lieutenant Dan and in his acting and some of the things the roles he'd been in. And, I said, wow, that is so cool. This guy, you know, would write me a note and say, thanks. We really enjoyed playing for you. And he asked me where I was going next. And he said, when you find out, let me know. I'd love to bring the band to the next place here. Tonight. And that became a journey that lasted to this day, where everywhere I would go, Gary and I would get in touch. And on every assignment to include Iraq, he came over and we just maintained this friendship that, frankly, he initiated. So as I'm about to retire, he had asked me if I'd be interested in joining the Gary Sinise Foundation as one of his board of directors. And I said I would be honored. I didn't know much about the foundation or what a board of directors is supposed to do. But one thing led to another. And he said, you know, I'm currently the chairman. I'm the founder. I'm the CEO. I need to probably get a little more white space. Would you consider becoming the CEO? And I did. And so... My wife and I talked about it, and it was an easy transition because I already told you in the Air Force for those 40 years, I live by the idea of mission, airmen, families. And it's such an easy transition to go to the Gary Sinise Foundation. We have such a noble mission. The people that we serve deserve our service, and so do their families. And so it was just a natural transition. And That's how I got there. So what is it we do, more importantly? The foundation straight up, man. Our mission is to help support defenders, active duty, guard reserve, those who are wearing our nation's cloth, help support defenders, help support veterans, any who has worn our nation's cloth, help support first responders, firefighters, law enforcement, EMT, and their families. So our mission is help support defenders, veterans, first responders and their families. Wow. That's a group of people that need help. They're not helpless, but they deserve our support because of what we've asked these people to do on our behalf. They deserve our support. And so that's what we do. That's the big thing. We broke it into four programmatic pillars that we have. So we're just not all over the map, okay? We've kind of focused on the four things we do. In the four programs, one is called Restore Independence, Support Empowerment, RISE. And it is to help either build from scratch, special adapted, world-class homes for severely wounded veterans or first responders. Part of RISE is also to provide home modifications vehicle modifications, anything we can do that helps the day-to-day living of these severely wounded veterans, first responders, and their families. That's program one. Program two is what's called relief and resiliency. I'll talk a little more about that. Program three is to do education and outreach. I'll talk about that here in a second. And the fourth program is to provide first support to first responders. And some of that is just hardware, you know, new fire Trucks, uh, equipment, right now PPE. There's not military bases in every town, but every town has fire and police, don't they? And EMT. So, those four programs, pillars, under those are multiple services and initiatives we do in each one of those relief and resiliency. The band provides relief and resiliency when they play. Serving heroes, we call it, where we provide meals. We'll go to different bases, different Outlets and provide a free meal. We help folks that are downtrodden and out, you know, a little bit on the on the backside. Whether it's help with some mortgage payments or insurance, we provide support to get veterans who need the invisible wounds of mental health. Whether it's dealing with PTS or TBI, to get them in the treatments that will actually really help them have a better tomorrow than their today is. We have a program under education and outreach called Soaring Valor, where we're taking World War II veterans and matching them with high school students to New Orleans in the World War II Museum, and we spread the word. And so we have these services and initiatives that we provide, and it's just just incredible. We're based out of Woodland Hills in Southern California. Mm -hmm. We have a bunch of really hard-charging young men and women, mostly who are committed to the idea of service and want to give back. And so that's a little bit about what we do. I'll stop there, come up for air because I could could go on and on. Well,
0: General, when I found out our little podcast was going to partner up with the Gary Sinise Foundation, I could not have been happier and more proud because I challenge anybody out there to find an individual like Gary Sinise that's done more for veterans, active duty, first responders. Good luck with that. And the fact that you are driving the ship, sir, Folks, go to the Gary Sinise Foundation and check it out. And if you want to give to an organization that is not going to just give a dime of their money that they received to something, but they are legitimate and doing the right we thing, are. please go to the Gary Sinise Foundation. Yeah, folks. Go to
1: GarySiniseFoundation.org. It's a wonderful website. Gary started this foundation on his eyebrow sweat. We're starting our 10th year. It was his vision. He did it because he was being spread thin, he was being asked to do a lot of things. After 9-11, he has committed his adult life to supporting our veterans and first responders and their families. And he started this foundation and it's just amazing. And He's legit, the foundation's legit, and we're making a difference.
0: Well, thank you very much General for that. We're going to shift gears a little bit here, sir. We like to do a thing on this show called the hypothetical survival world. What that is, sir, is I am going to put you into a hypothetical life-threatening survival situation. And you are going to go through this and you get the option to choose A or B. And we will tick through this thing. If you choose the right one, you get plus 10 points. If you choose the wrong one, it's minus 10 points. And at the end of the day, we'll see how you score and see if you survive, sir. So are you ready to play hypothetical sure. survival world general? I'm right. ready. All right. So here we are, sir. It's 11 p.m. and you are heading home from a Gary Sinise Foundation event. You're on the phone with your wife telling her, hey, I'll be back in about 20 minutes. And up ahead, you see a car with the hazard lights on, the hood up, and there's a woman trying to wave you down. So you pull over, get out, and you say, hey, what seems to be a problem? Are you okay? And then two gentlemen from the side of the road, hidden in the shoulder, come out, and you are at gunpoint. In a Russian accent, they tell you, get in the back of the car. They get on each side of you. The woman gets back in and starts driving away. But before you get in the backseat of that car, again, you are at gunpoint. Are you going to run for it? Or are you going to comply? This is before they put you in the back seat. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to apply. And that's smart because when you're confronted with two gentlemen with weapons at close range, that's probably the best thing to do. At the same time in a scenario like this where it's an abduction or something like that, you're trying to buy a little time. The last thing you want to do when it's already heightened and crazy is to do something crazier than that, like run from bullets, which we both know is impossible to do. Okay, sir. So here we go. That's plus 10 right out of the gates. All I right, General. Deal. So, General, you are forced into the back seats. You've got a gunman on each side of you, and they place a hood over your head. So you're probably having flashbacks from your SEER training, but here we go. The female drives away. Now, you've been in the back for what you would guess is about an hour. Here's your next option here, sir. You can quietly reach into your pocket and try and hit send on your cell phone because the last call was to your wife, or you can try and very delicately lift up your hood to get an idea of where you might be. What
1: would you do, sir? Well, in that hour, I'm going to be doing a lot of praying, that's the first thing. (laughs) I think I'll quietly try to hit send. Absolutely,
0: sir. And for several reasons, number one. Your wife is going to realize something's gone wrong because you should have been home 45 minutes ago. She's going to be hearing an empty phone, but if you can try and strike up conversation, she's going to hear Russian accents and say, okay, this is bad. And third, you could send a ping out of your location. So if all these things come together, that's going to be your best bet. Trying to lift up your hood might just get you hit right in the temple with a pistol general plus 20 points after two 100% so far All right, so here you go sir another hour has passed and after several dirty and bumpy roads the vehicle comes to a stop you are removed from the back of the car brought into a large warehouse and tied to a vertical pole they remove the hood and the two gunmen and the female driver are there they start asking you questions and they start beating you So, congratulations, you are now in an interrogation. And to make things worse, the questions that these two gentlemen with Russian accents are asking you are regarding the US nuclear program. So they clearly know who you are and what you have done. You have been targeted. So during this initial interrogation, will you remain silent or are you going to start giving them pieces of inaccurate information this is going back decades sir to your seer training yeah and you are in the resist phase
1: right I'm going to try to give them information that is seems legitimate but that isn't outstanding
0: sir that's exactly what you want to do and what we learned from our training is if you just stay quiet especially if the interrogation is entered hard interrogation where you're getting abused, not saying right. anything is not going to do you any favors. If you can continue communicating, even if it's not factual, you are buying yourself some time, sir. Excellent. Plus right. 30, 100%. Three, hey, for three. I'm oh, you're killing it, sir. And you're leaning on your previous training, and it's working out well for this hypothetical situation. All right. So, sir, here we go. Unfortunately, these gentlemen do not believe the information they are giving you and the beatings continue at a much more aggressive pace during this are you going to act like you have become unconscious or are you going to continue to tell them more of the inaccurate information
1: i think what i'll try to do is is act really hurt and just that i can't communicate anymore i mean it's just they've hurt me too much
0: absolutely sir that is another correct answer at plus 40. Reason being is if they've accelerated the physical abuse, obviously what you were doing prior is not going to be helpful. Having been on both sides of an interrogation, there is a limit to somebody where it is the law of diminished returns if you continue to beat them. So by acting like you are unconscious or injured, the theory is, okay, this isn't working and they should stop. So that is, in my opinion, the correct procedure. Four for four, General. General. Here we go. Moving on. Okay. They've lost patience with you. They untie you and drag you back toward the car. Only you are able to take a peek while you're acting to be hurt unconscious. You see nothing but darkness. There's no signs of life out here. They throw you into the trunk of the vehicle. And the vehicle speeds off. You take a look at your watch. It's a little after 4 a.m. You reach back and underneath you... Let's see, what do you do here, sir? You fill a lug wrench under your back, okay? Now, you pull what most cars have is an emergency release in the trunk. What are you going to do here? Are you going to hold onto the trunk but keep it from being latched, or are you going to attempt to hop out while the vehicle is doing approximately 50 miles per hour?
1: No, I won't survive at my age. Hopping out probably <laughs> <laughs> would not probably be the approved solution. I think I'm going to hold on to the latch.
0: Absolutely. All right. That is also a correct decision because, I mean, I've talked to incredible stunt performers, and I think they would probably not want to take that option as well. Yeah. But you have created something where I was stuck in this trunk. Now have an opportunity for a possible escape. Oh, and by the way, you now are armed with a lug wrench, which was under your back by the spare tire. Okay, so here we go, General. Five for five. The vehicle stops, and you hear the abductors get out of the backseat, moving back toward you. Now, you can only assume by the fact that they threw you in the trunk, and they're going somewhere. This is probably a death sentence for me. I'm in the middle of nowhere. So are you going to wait until they open the trunk, and they pull you out or are you going to initiate attack on these two gunmen with the lug wrench again you pretty much realize this is a one-way ticket for me at this point
1: yeah i think if that's the case then i should try to initiate the attack
0: absolutely spoken like a true hero and and, (laughs) airman you are not going to wait and die you are going to go out fighting and that's exactly what I would recommend to anybody. Look, this is it—one-way ticket. I know what these guys are going to do. I might as well go out fighting for yeah, my that's life. Swinging, man. Absolutely, six for six, general plus six. You are on the road to a perfect score, which has only happened once. The pressure—the cool. pressure is on, sir. All right, so you are able to get the jump on these guys and disable both of them with blows to their body and head. Unfortunately, as you are proceeding through this attack one of them squeezes off around which you take right into the shoulder all right the female driver sees what's going on and she turns and she gets ready to start firing at you are you going to run or are you going to attempt to get the vehicle granted two guys down but you've got a female shooting at you run or try and get the vehicle sir
1: okay i think probably i'm wounded I think I need to try to get in the vehicle. I don't think running I'm going to do so well with a, with a gunshot wound. So
0: Now, just once again, General, now you have the female driver that is drawing down on you with a handgun. And she's right by. So here we go. You run to increase your distance. or you are going to try and take over that vehicle? Yeah. I just want to make sure I was very clear about the situation you're dealing with after you've popped out of that trunk.
1: It's four in the morning. It's still dark. Barely.
0: Sun is starting to creep up, sir.
1: Yeah, I guess it's a tough situation.
0: Very. It's
1: shock me out of it. I'll try running.
0: Absolutely. And the reason being, it's kind of like I explained to people who find themselves in an active shooter situation, which you pretty much are at this point. And your number one goal is to get down and move. It's called getting off the X. You're in the kill zone right now. You've got two guys that are temporarily disabled, but you've got a third female who's getting ready to draw down. So you need to get off the X, get that live for the moment, get Just that live. distance, general. Plus, Don't only take
1: half credit for that when you had the. No, nah,
0: I didn't give you the thorough environment of what you were doing but <laughs> that that third shooter. All right, sir. Plus seventy, outstanding. Okay, so you get off the X, you increase that distance. You hear the pursuers. Do you continue running? or do you address your injury again you hear these guys they're on your they're on you they're pursuing you got a bad injury shoulder it's bleeding pretty bad continue running or address the injury at that moment
1: i think i need to address the injury somewhat and then then i'll resume cuz i'm not going to last very long if if i'm losing blood like that
0: absolutely and the reason being sir is You're bleeding out, and by continuing to run, you are only going to increase the amount of hemorrhaging you're dealing with, especially if they've hit a major artery. So do a quick address of the injury and live to continue to run, whereas continuing to run is just going to exacerbate the injury that you've incurred. Wow. General plus 80 with two more to go. You're that close. You're that close to a perfect score, sir. Okay. The sun has risen. Alright, you don't hear any pursuers anymore. Alright, you stop, you readdress the injury. You're kind of smoking, the bleeding is still very bad. You're looking around, you don't see anything you recognize, you don't see any signs of life, so you have to make a choice. To the east, you see a hill that you could climb and it might give you a better vantage point if there's anything around, any signs of life. To the west, you see some lower lying ground that's green. So. Consider this a desert, nasty desert environment, hill where you can take an observation or lower ground that appears to have some green growth and some vegetation. Do you go east to the hill or west to the green growth?
1: I have no support for this answer, but I think I need to take the low line, the west.
0: Yes, sir. And the reason being in a desert environment, if you see green, that means moisture. If you have moisture, that means hydration. And anytime you see a waterway that's in a very remote area, generally speaking, that waterway will lead to some form of population. One more, General. You're nine for nine. Here we are, sir. The final decision. You see a home with power lines about a half a mile away. The only problem is between your position and this home with power lines is a road and you see that vehicle has just passed by almost like they are patrolling. We consider this in the SEAL teams a danger crossing. All right, here's the problem. You are starting to fade pretty quick as a result of your injury and you realize your life is on the clock. Are you gonna set up shop, do a reconnaissance and just wait and watch? Or are you gonna say, you know what? I got to move to that house. This is for a perfect score, General. No pressure,
1: sir. Well, you know, I think I realize that if I'm, sounds like I'm fading and I can die waiting, doing the reconnaissance, or I can try to pick between, I think I'm going to the house. A perfect hundred points, sir. So you're in okay. very,
0: very esteemed company
1: here, sir. That's that- <laughs> esteemed, you got it.
0: General, that was outstanding. I can't thank you enough. Sir, we touched on a little bit earlier. But I'd like to do what we call an after action report at the end of the show. And I would just love to hear from you anything that, wow, well, I, I hadn't thought about that for, before. Maybe something that might be a takeaway for you, sir, as a lesson learned.
1: Well, again, I think, first of all, I just want to take this opportunity, whoever's listening to, to our veterans out there and our first responders to thank them from the bottom of my heart. Thank them as a former veteran, but more importantly, as a citizen, as a husband, Is a father and a grandfather, for guys like you and your cohorts who have done so much for us. And that is why the Gary Sinise Foundation exists. It's a rough and tumble world out there, but we have rough riders who do our business for us. And I will never wake up on any day and not be grateful for men and women like you. Second, I would just encourage people, find a passion, man. Do something that's worthy and whatever that is, but something that's worthy in service of others. The needs are real in our veterans community, and they deserve our support because we've asked so much of them. And so it's just a privilege to be able to be with you and share some of these stories, but more importantly, to be part of Gary Sinise's team and part of the Gary Sinise Foundation.
0: Well, General Robin Rand, I cannot thank you enough for your time, for your service to our country, your continued leadership and service in the Gary Sinise Foundation. Thanks for joining us today, folks. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with friends, family, loved ones, co-workers, anyone you care about because our continued mission is to save lives. The best way to support our show is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out our YouTube channel for video content of all of our episodes. So ring that bell to subscribe. And if you have any survival questions you want answered just leave it in the comments so you can be a survivor not a statistic sir again thank you so much it was an absolute honor having you on today
1: that's an honor kate thank you so much for having me everyone be well out there okay we're going to get through this
0: absolutely thank you sir and congratulations (laughs) on a perfect score you survived Thanks. (laughs) can you survive this podcast is a cavalry audio production Recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.